Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. If you do not have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles that are available for you to use in the seats to the front and to the back of you. Um, and you could flip to page 904. Please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So we are on the 15th chapter of the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And in this letter, we are able to see how the Corinthian church started to adopt worldly ideologies. And it messed them up. It messed up their worship. If we could sum up how perhaps uh, the Apostle Paul and ultimately God felt about them in a sentence, it could be, why are you the way that you are? But, but God does not leave them in their state of ignorance, unbelief, and disobedience. He uses the Apostle Paul to bring them back one step at a time, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time. When we look at the current state of the church today, perhaps we recognize that we are not so different from where the Corinthians were. Someone here actually came up to me and said that they believe that we are worse off than they are. Maybe. We'll see. But these days, all these uh, deconstructionists are the craze. Deconstructionists are people who say that they were Christian, but then come out to say that they are no longer for whatever reason. Now they are selling courses on how to de deconstruct your own faith. And for only $275, you can take his guide to do that. It's a little irksome when we see some public figures come out saying that they discovered some discrepancies in their faith and now will publicly deny the faith, as if they were the only ones to think of these so-called discrepancies. You know, that's right. No one ever thought of the question about the creation story or once evolution came out until you thought of it. There are no answers to these simple, straightforward questions, apparently. 
And so they are lauded and given the opportunity to monetize their quote-unquote deconversion. Or they may become insta-famous because their dad is one of the most popular evangelicals in the modern world, only to use that platform and podium and fame to slander God. Or perhaps their admission that they suddenly discovered these discrepancies is just indicative of their lack of depth of faith in the first place. You know, I saw this video recently that I wanted to just share a little bit about its context, uh, contents. Uh, Paul Washer was asked what he thought the greatest threat to the church in our generation was. Someone asked him on a panel, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church in our generation? And think about that. How would you have answered? What is the greatest threat to the church in our generation? And he answered with something that no one was expecting, that they all laughed, at first thinking it was a joke. What is the greatest threat to the church in our generation? And he said, pastors. And when people laughed, he responded again, deadpan. Honestly, it's pastors. And he qualified it by saying, wherever you see a weak church, you see these weak men either being non-existent, unbiblical, or unconverted. You see, the Word of God is true in every way. And when it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it says that it is time. Now is the time for judgment to begin. And where does judgment begin? It begins at the household of God. You can rail against the world. You can get angry at the political nature of literally everything now. Vaccines are political. Masks are political. Sending your school, kids to school is political. Going to work is political. But when you take God's word out of the church and subsequently the family, the people will look elsewhere for a savior. Amos 8 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. A worse kind of famine, a worse kind of pandemic, a worse kind of situation that we could ever be in is not to be able to hear the word of the Lord because it's in the word of the Lord that we have the way to salvation. You know, what is everyone afraid of today? What is everyone afraid of today? Isn't it the same though? Isn't it the same as yesterday and the day before that? Why should everyone get vaccinated? Or why should everyone do this or that? Isn't it because of the promise that you won't die? Or your chances of dying will be decreased or lessened? But I think the better question is this. Why is it so bad that you die? No matter what your belief, what kind of education you've received, where you're from, why is there this assignment of morality to death? Why is it that we feel in our bones that death is wrong? Not including despots, because there are deaths inside dancing in the streets, but 
When a loved one dies, why is there mourning? If it truly is just natural, meaning it's just a part of nature, why grieve? I mean, all of you should say to someone then who is grieving, hey, wake up, this is just how things are. In the very least, it shouldn't be considered insensitive, but it is. When someone dies, we grieved with our loved ones. When someone that is close to us dies, and even worse yet, if it's our child, there is this inordinate amount of grief. There is extreme sorrow. Why do we feel the need to console and comfort? By the way, if you haven't yet, go to our library and borrow a copy of The Moon is Always Round by Jonathan Gibson. Read it with your family and kids and then buy yourself a copy. But the ancient Greeks had a way to deal with this too. Again, not so different from some today. They would say there is no resurrection. And to long for one, to want your loved one to come back to life again, to want to walk with them again, well, that's unintellectual. It's barbaric. And only the unlearned think like that. And the people want it to be considered intellectual. Hey, I'm smart. I'm hip. I can tweet or make TikToks that will blow your mind. But this is why the Bible also says, and all the way from chapter 1 of this letter, that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews couldn't believe that the Messiah would be crucified. That's weak. I don't want to follow a weak leader. And to the Greeks, this was unintellectual foolishness. But the Bible continues on to say, but it says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God took what the world thought was stupid and weak and in Jesus Christ showed that he was infinitely wiser and infinitely more powerful than anyone could have ever imagined. In chapter 15, Paul says, you are a Christian because you believe in the resurrection. That's what makes you distinctly Christian. Christ lived and died in accordance with the scriptures. He was completely dead, so that's why he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. This wasn't just something that someone made up during Jesus' lifetime. This was prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before he was even born. And those that saw Jesus' resurrected body, over 500 separate cases. This was not one mass hallucination, each one with their own record and account with nothing to gain. They didn't sell online courses to the resurrection for $275. Instead, they were beaten. They were tortured. They were stoned. They were sawed in half. They were crucified upside down, all because they wouldn't and couldn't deny the resurrection of Christ. None of the apostles made it to old age except John, Insert plug for Bible study. Except John, who was exiled to a tiny prison island called Patmos. You thought Rhode Island was small. 
Rhode Island at 1,214 square miles is 38 times bigger than Patmos. So why would anyone do this? Why would anybody want to be on this size claiming that the resurrection is real? But the scriptures show us that the resurrection account is an empirical fact. We don't hold on to some old wives' tale. It's not myth. It's proven with two kinds of witness accounts. All this happened, number one, all this happened in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, solid eyewitness accounts. People that walked with him day after day for three years to people that hated him and even murdered Christians, they saw the resurrected Christ. But Paul from verse 12 to 19 would go on to this hypothetical. What if the resurrection isn't real? Well, if the resurrection isn't real, then Christ didn't rise. The apostolic witness then, the apostles, they're all liars. And then they would get their due because they are misrepresenting God. Then all of you would still be in your sins, and that means the dead would have permanently perished. And then Paul concludes in verse 19, we are the most pathetic then. We are to be pitied to the utmost degree. And then we get into verse 20 this morning. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This isn't some spiritual resurrection. Oh, he'll always be in our hearts, that kind of thing. This is, in fact, a bodily, physical resurrection. Some might respond today, well, what if people don't want to believe that that's true? Well, unfortunately for them, facts aren't dependent on their wants or feelings. Far be it from Christians being the most pitied among men, the resurrection completely flips that narrative. Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead, and this leads us to three things then that this fact assures. Number one, the first fruits. Number two, the later fruits. And number three, the final fruits. And for the astute, it's clear that there is an order. Just as there is an order to the beginning of creation, there is an order to the final days. Let's go to the first fruits. There is no doubt in Paul's mind at all. The perfect tense, has been raised, comes in full force. It means that Christ was not only raised on a certain day in history, but that he continues to be in this permanent state of resurrection as Lord. He qualifies it by calling Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits points us to the first sheaf of grain, the first ripe harvest that you pluck. This was brought to the temple and offered to God according to Leviticus 23.10. What you did by giving the first fruits was you consecrated the whole harvest. By giving the first fruits, it was as if you gave the whole harvest to God. Not only that, but first fruits imply later fruits. First fruits are not an isolated event. You don't have first fruits and then nothing then it will be the only fruits, but that's not the case. First fruits implied and even guaranteed that other fruits 
were to come, later fruits. Not only that, but first fruits which show the character of what the rest of the harvest would look like. The beginning of the harvest would show you what the rest of the harvest would look like. So when God demanded the first fruits of the harvest, He wanted the first and best, and people were willing to give it because it showed that the faith that people had, that the rest of the harvest would come in just like the first. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sign of the resurrection of all those who belong to Him. And Jesus commonly told parables about the harvest, and so people in the ancient world would know they would understand what Jesus said or what it meant that Jesus was the first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates and assures us of the quality of the rest of the harvest. This is also written in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This points to the quality of the resurrection. What kind of resurrection? It wasn't like the ones that were done in the past, the raising of Jairus' daughter or the widow's son, Nine, or even Lazarus. They, have been, they, may, they may have been raised, but they all died again. The quality of the resurrection is shown, in, shown to us in passages like we are going over in the Wednesday night Bible study. In Revelation 1, it says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In Romans 6, 9, it says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That's why in Revelations 1.5, also in Colossians 1.18, Romans 8.29, he is called the firstborn of the dead. This isn't just simply chronological raising. Last week we reviewed leader or archegos, and this time the word firstborn is the word prototokos. Prototokos means first, but it also means best and noblest. That's why it's such a deep disappointment to Jacob when his firstborn Reuben went into his father's bed. And now that name is just for sandwiches. I'm sorry, I was thinking about this. Is anybody going to be named Reuben? I apologize if you are named Reuben and you're listening to this. It's not your fault. Your parents didn't do any research. But don't worry. People hate the name Eugene so much that they rather be called Flynn Rider. So it's fine. So, prototokos means chief or leader. The prototokos is the preeminent one. He is the premier, and he is the first fruits and firstborn of all that have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for those that have died but are in Christ. This is almost a term of affection by Paul for his fellow brothers and sisters who have died in the Lord. Their souls aren't dead, but until their resurrection, they are waiting with the Lord until the parousia, the second coming of Christ. Our bodies are waiting and longing for the resurrection. And it's not just any kind of resurrection. 
the quality of the resurrection that we long for is that of Christ's, which leads us to our second point, the later fruits. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. If anyone were to ask how the resurrection could have such broad application, Paul says it here, it's developed more in Romans 5, uh, but the death coming through one man is pronounced in Genesis 2.17. Leon Morris says this about this, when man sinned, he passed into a new state, one dominated by and at the same time symbolized by death. When Adam sinned, he not only brought disaster on himself, but it had far-reaching consequences. Adam was also a sort of first fruits, but the harvest of these were bad and they were rotten. Our world is fallen because of his sin, and there is a direct relationship between the death that Adam brought to humanity and the resurrection for those that are in Christ. Because this is talking about the physical body. There is no question that people believe in the spirit. The Greeks believed that there was passage to pay the ferryman into Hades. That's why they put a coin in people's mouths as they died or put them on their eyes so that they could bribe the ferryman. But even secular pagans today believe that they have a spirit or a psychological self which sometimes can somehow differ from their physical gender, which is another thing in itself. But we are talking about the physical body. What makes you human is that you have a body. And Paul repeats again that a man, corruption and death entered humanity. And it was also through a man, that is the Christ, death was overcome. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And it's clear up here that all will die because of Adam. And we all have a kind of kinship with our parents and their parents. And it keeps on going up. I look at the babies today and I look at them. They're like, they're exactly like you, man. She smiles just like you. Baby is three days old. How does she know how to smile? Because she got it from her parents. And the parents before that. And the parents before that. We have this kinship, but we also have this kinship of corruption. There are these movements now and theories that will try to separate us now between races. Its aim is to divide and conquer, but these are just man-made constructs. There's only one race, and it's in Adam. And this one race is in solidarity with Adam in its guilt for the consequences of evil brought forth by the disobedience of first Adam and then all of us. However, in Ephesians 2, the scriptures show us that in Christ, he has made one new man. And those that are in Christ are made alive. We are resurrected in him. But there's an order. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. There is an order. And the word for order is the word tagma. It was originally used as a military term. That means this is the first detachment 
The first in line is the first fruits, which is Jesus. It suggests rank, place, order. Then in the parousia, the second coming of Christ, and parousia literally means his presence, right? At the parousia, what comes after the tagma is, are all those that belong to him. The later fruit hasn't happened yet because it's the church, and it hasn't happened yet for the church. There are those in Christ in heaven with their spirits, and they are also waiting to be raised again at the second coming. The scriptures have a lot to say about the parousia, and we have gone over some of the sayings of Jesus when he talks about it, like in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 30, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. The nations, even today, rage against God and his people. What they need to do then, what they need to do is they need to try to get in as much fun in as they can. They need to deconstruct whatever they can before the judgment. Perhaps they believe they can repent right before death. While God's grace is astounding, the notion that you think that you can repent right before you die would be the thought of the quintessential sinner. To the very end, the rebel against God believes that he is in control over his life and he will never surrender to God. To think that one could manipulate God by saying that he could repent right before he dies shows the arrogance and pride of someone who thinks they can outsmart God. But this is what the Bible says in Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The, re the call to repent is not tomorrow. It's today. The writer of Hebrew goes on to say that those that rebelled against Moses, they didn't listen to his call to repent, and they did not enter into his rest. They were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that brings us to the final fruits. In verse 24, when the, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then, eta, means after a while. Then after a while, come the end. It comes the end. And the end is telos. 
The end isn't referring to a people, but the final fruits refer to the consummation of all things. That's when the purpose is reached. Telos means the end. The purpose is reached. And just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, Jesus in the end will destroy every rule and every authority and power and deliver that up to the Father. Remember that every rule, authority, and power is given by God. If you are a leader in any capacity, down to the head of household, you have been given the responsibility to use it for his glory. But instead, the rulers of the world will use it to rebel against God. But it says here that Christ will destroy. That means he will make null and void. Christ will destroy every dominion and power that opposes God. For he must reign. That means God has determined it to be so, so it must come to pass. Therefore, there is no shadow of a doubt about it. No matter how bad it may get, no matter how much it seems like the church is fighting a losing battle, no matter how much it seems like the enemy is winning, at the climax of history, it is Christ who reigns and who must reign. And as Jesus quoted from Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And these enemies aren't named except for the last one, and it's death. Death is our last enemy, but it will be rendered powerless. The tense used is the present tense. That's why the ESV chose to translate it in such a manner. And when the present tense is used to signify a future action, it's the force of certainty. Paul, in these last verses, puts these sentences together in the most forceful way to show us the assurance that we have in the resurrection. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So in the final fruit, all things will be put under his subjection. Every enemy, every human, every demon, every rule, authority, power, every king, every despot, and even president that would go against the rule of God will be crushed under the sovereignty of Christ. And when all these things have happened, he will subject himself to the Father so that God may be all in all. That's the end. The end is God. He is the Omega. And someone may ask after reading this, does this mean that Jesus will be subject to God the Father? Subject means to be put under. And that's exactly what this verse is saying. But Paul is not speaking on the nature of the Father or Son. He is speaking of the work that Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. Christ lived and died for our sins. He was buried and raised again in three days. And he will return again and subdue all the enemies of God. The climax and end of all his work will be when he renders all things to God, who is the source of all. John Calvin writes, all things will be brought back to God as their alone beginning and end. 
that they may be closely bound to him. And for the believer, this is incredible news. Like Peter said, the resurrection gives us everlasting hope. And as Paul says, the resurrection is assured. This is why the saints gather on this day, Sunday. In the Bible, it's called the Lord's Day because it was the day that Christ was raised. Every Sunday is a mini-resurrection day. It's a mini-Easter. That's how the first century church remembered Sunday. And the Lord gave us one day a week, not only to physically rest, but to remind our spirits that our ultimate physical and spiritual rest is coming and that it has been assured to us in Christ. Sunday gatherings are to Christ no small day. To Christians, it is no small day either. I gather because it's a weekly event that we can, or we might tend to take it for granted, but I urge you not to. This weekly event, these resurrection days, ultimately point to the consummation of all things where Christ will finally take us up to be with him for all eternity. And for the believer, that's good news. That's why we gather. In our gathering, we are pointing to the ultimate resurrection that we will have in Christ that has been assured to us in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given us. In your holy word, we have assurance that by faith we have been saved and we have been saved unto life. And Lord, we long for the day that we are and we will be resurrected. And so we ask God that you continue to do a sanctifying work in us that we may not tarry, that we may not grow weary, but rather by the power of your Holy Spirit we may be able to run the race that is set before us. Let's pray now and ask God to continue to do a work in us that would glorify Him, that our lives may be reflective of the truth of the resurrection, that we may be able to run as He has called us to run, holy and obedient lives to Him, waiting with everlasting hope, the assurance of the resurrection of His second coming and the resurrection of our bodies. Let's pray.